Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Right now, you can get a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. You have to spell it out the traditional way, audibletrial.com slash other people. Get yourself a free audiobook download on the program. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Okay, folks, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is trying to get your attention. This is the content I have lovingly created just for you. Hi, I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for being here with me. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for giving me uh, your kind attention. My guest is Hallie Butler. Her debut novel is called Jillian, and it is available now from Curbside Splendor, a fine independent press based in Chicago. Uh, The book just dropped yesterday. It dropped. It's a novel, and it dropped. It's called Jillian, and uh, Hallie Butler, the novel's author, will be uh, joining me momentarily for a discussion. So I want to thank you guys, uh, first off, for the good wishes. I got a lot of good wishes after uh, the last episode, which was a popular episode. Got a good uh, got a good response. Poor Chista Kakpur. People, do- uh, people dug it, and people were nice to me about the uh, baby. My wife and I are expecting, in case you didn't hear, uh, it looks like we're going to have a second child after uh, much, uh, what do we call it, much heartache. We are expecting. It's very exciting. People uh, sent me a lot of good wishes. A lot of people knocked wood because I asked them to. And uh, incidentally, uh, there's a lot of stress that comes with uh, having a second child, if you're me and my wife. You know, like we're, like we were up last night talking about the baby and we're like oh yeah and then suddenly you like casually start discussing like how we you know how are we going to afford this which you know because we are who we are we haven't like fully discussed or like thought through it's kind of a tricky situation because my wife is 40 so we don't have the luxury of time you know if you want to have a second child you sort of got to do it 
And so we're doing it and we're like, well, we'll figure it out, but it gets stressful. And so you talk about that right before bed, which is a mistake. It's my mistake. I brought it up. And then, uh, like we sort of stopped talking about it and then we tried to watch TV, but we were still both thinking about it, but we didn't want to talk about it because it would stress both of us out. And then we turned the TV off and then we were trying to fall asleep and we couldn't really fall asleep. And then we were just sort of lying there in the dark. And I think we both knew that we were both awake, but we didn't want to talk about it because we didn't want to continue the conversation. You know what I'm saying? Does anybody else go through this shit financially? I think it's pretty common. I'm talking to uh, writers. And, you know, it doesn't seem healthy to repress. You should discuss these things. If you're like me, you should, you know, you want to like talk things through. But I also don't want to stress my wife out. So I sort of have to carry this, uh, you know, these worries, uh, you know, quietly, which is maybe the more uh, manly thing to do. I don't know. So I'm telling you about them, <laughs> sharing them with the nation. Uh, and then there was this thing, there was this job, uh, thing that came up not too long ago where this out of the blue, this, like, like this guy who works for this big time advertising firm emails me and he's like, yeah, you know, one of our clients, our corporate clients, GE, as in general electric, uh, they are doing a uh, web series about the American kitchen and they need a host. And uh, we have uh, tabbed you as a possibility. Like somehow they found me via the podcast and they, they, he wanted to inquire about my level of interest. So, you know, I contact, I have a manager, I contact him, I send him the email, I kind of forward, you know, I forwarded the email to him and I was like, I don't know what this is. Web stuff never pays anything. Check it out. So he's like, all right. And he gives the guy a call and it turns out that the job was going to pay somewhere between like a hundred and two hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> and so right away I was like, okay, fine, fuck it. I'll do it. I'll host a, a web series about the American kitchen for general electric, which incidentally, and this was not lost on me at the time. Uh, this was the corporation that Ronald Reagan used to be a pitch man for. So it was kind of a compromising of uh, some sort of weird idealistic uh, value that I have in the back of my head. You know, this weird self-concept that we tend to have as artists where we're like, you know, I'm never going to sell out, man. Not doing it. But I don't have that luxury. I've got a kid. I've got another one on the way. I live in a really expensive city. I don't have the luxury of saying no to something like this. I got to do it. And so suddenly uh, I really wanted it because it would solve a lot of problems for me quickly. It was like a two week job and you get paid like 175 K or that was how I was imagining it. I was seeing myself in the American kitchen talking to families <laughs> about their appliances. I mean, it's just an, a complete, uh, absurdity, but also like a good opportunity. I don't want to bag on it. I don't have, like I said, who am I? to turn down a, a good paying job at this point. How many of us out there could do that? You know, when you've got a family to support, if it's, if it's just you and you want to be an idealist, great, but I've got mouths to feed. So I was ready to do this. And long story short, um, there was like a, a two week span of time where the uh, advertising firm went to the executives at GE, GE gave feedback. They went back to the drawing board 
they went back and forth, back and forth, and then ultimately GE decided that they are going to do the series but without a host. No host. (laughs) That's what I just found out. So after all of that and all of the uh, daydreaming, thoughts of uh, money raining down upon me for being a corporate pitch man, uh, my dream was shattered. But it was kind of encouraging, just the fact that they found uh, this show. It seems like a lot of times when you're doing a podcast in this day and age, there's so many fucking podcasts. You're just one voice in a giant, gushing river of uh, voices. It's kind of hard to be uh, noticed. But I have entertained fantasies. Like, yeah, one day, like some uh, some titan of industry, some radio mogul is going to call me up and say, hey, let's uh, let's get you on the air. Let me pay you large sums of money to do a show. Still waiting for that call. So I was in Starbucks yesterday. Uh, I've been trying to work in Starbucks. It's it's easier to work in the corporate coffee shops because they don't really clock you. If you're in some like like small mom and pop coffee shop and you sit there for six hours, they sort of watch you. They're like looking at you like, are you going to order some more stuff? Are you just going to sit there and take up our table? So at Starbucks, no one gives a shit. And uh, so I'm sitting there and the only seat that I could get was at a community table. And, you know, about an hour or two into my like session, this insane person comes in like a, you know, like a mentally ill homeless guy comes into the store. Like the seat of his pants is wet. I don't know what that was from. He looks like he could be violent. He looked really crazy. And he sat down right across from me and started shouting the N word in the Starbucks, everyone's looking at him and then kind of like looking at me. Cause I was near him. I'm just like, dude, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to do with this. And you know what? Like with the way things are in the world, how many crazy people there are doing crazy things on the news or in the news. Uh, you read about this stuff on like a, a daily basis. Essentially. I just got up and left. I was like, fuck this. I'm not doing, I'm not dealing with it. I'm out. Is that the right attitude? Like, should I have tried to be, uh, the guy who escorts this gentleman out? I don't know. He had a backpack. I don't know what he's got in his backpack. I'm out. Got enough shit on my plate. I'm not dealing with some crazy, uh, freak in Starbucks. And then, uh, Valentine's day didn't do much didn't do anything. We had reservations to go out to dinner. And then my wife and I like, we were tired. We were like, fuck it. I don't even feel like going to a restaurant. So, uh, we were hanging around. My daughter went, uh, to, uh, you know, she had like a sitter essentially. It was at the, as it like, it was at her, uh, ballet place. They do on holidays. They do these like nights where all the, you know, all the kids go and they watch movies and dance around and whatnot. And so the parents can go out to dinner and have a date or whatever. So, we dropped our daughter off and then it was just the two of us at home. And my wife who's pregnant, I was like, are you hungry? What do you want me to make you? Like, she's like, you know, I just really want pizza. So I wound up just walking to the corner and I got my wife a pizza and I took my dog with me, Walter. And on the way, uh, like two people, you know, we're, we're kind of cooing over Walter. He's a cute dog. He's a French bulldog. And you know, you sort of forget, I sort of forget that, you know, that he's really cute until I take him out in public and see the effect that he has on people. It's unbelievable. The effect this fucking dog has on people. 
Uh, if I had the same effect, if people were as nice to me <laughs> as they are to my dog, well, you know, when, whenever he's out in public, my life would be a lot different. My opinion of people would be better. So, you know, a lot of times people be like, oh my God, he's so cute. And this happens even when I'm with my daughter. So I've got like a human child, an adorable daughter who's four years old with me. And people still compliment the dog first, which sort of chafes me. And, uh, you know, on this occasion, it was just me. And uh, I remember I was standing outside of the pizza place uh, waiting for this pizza to be cooked. And this uh, married couple exits the pizza shop and, and the woman goes, oh, my God, he's so cute. And uh, like sort of as a joke, I was like, uh, who, me? Talking about me? Like that was my uh, that was my attempted at humor. And it just didn't land at all. And I don't know if it was just these people or if it was my tone or if it was, you know, it was Valentine's Day and her husband was trying to be romantic and he was like taking a front to the fact that I was implying that his wife was telling me that I was cute. I was completely joking. And it led to this sort of awkward moment. No, so I was just, you know, it was a joke. Ha, uh, you know, everyone always talks about the dog. Didn't land. Miscommunication. A misfire. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Hallie Butler. Her debut novel, once more, is called Jillian. And uh, it's available now from Curbside Splendor. It's a funny book. Hallie's a funny uh, woman. That's not all she is. She's capable of drama, too. But I'm just saying. She's got some humor in her. And uh, the book, it just uh, it just dropped yesterday. Go get yourself a copy. Uh, once again, it's called Jillian. And this is my conversation with Hallie Butler. <laughs> No, no, there's no, there's no false pride over here. Right. So where are you at? Were you in Chicago? I'm in Chicago. Yes. Like in the city proper? Yes, but I am. But you're from Michigan? Um, yeah, I went to high school in Michigan um, and I grew up in central Illinois, lived in Indianapolis for a little bit, lived in Cleveland for a little bit. I used to live in Indianapolis. Sort of- how old were you? I was in junior high and high school. Did you like it? I mean, progressively less as I got deeper into my adolescence and was like sort of ready to break out. And, you know, I think everybody gets sick of their hometown when they're 15, 16 years old. 
but uh, I have, I made a lot of good friends. My experience with high school too. <laughs> what, where, like, where did you go to high school? And you said in Michigan. Yeah, I went to East Lansing um, High School, and that's where Michigan State is. Yeah, sure. So college, um, college town. Yeah, it's a college town, and I'm still I'm still pretty close with a lot of my friends from high school. It's a good point. Midwest is a good place to grow up. Yeah, I have no point of reference, um, but yeah, it was it yeah, was you, good. You, have you like so? Have you ever left the Midwest? Have you ever like lived extensively outside of the Midwest? No, I haven't. Do you ever want to? Uh, yeah, I, sure. It would be nice to live somewhere with good weather, I guess. But I, I like, I don't really make plans. I'm not a plan person. Right. I don't have like a five year plan where it's like, and then by 20, whatever, I will be living in California or some shit like that. Do you think that's better? Or do you think that you're, do you think it's better to, to be a not planning person? Or do you think that that's somehow like a failure on your part to not be like having a better idea of where you're headed? I think that it's a personality thing <clears throat> more than a, is it good or is it bad thing? It's just not, I, every time I try to turn myself into a planning person, it just ends up with me failing and feeling bad. So I just sort of go with it, I guess. Yeah. But, but you know, you have to be a, uh, what is that? Uh, my phone, which I'm silencing right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, it was like a tea kettle. What the fuck was that? <laughs> it's the the you know fake Bernard Herman Theremin uh, iPhone ring. Oh okay, I'm not familiar with that one. But uh, so okay, but you know, like when it comes to planning, because you do have to be somewhat regimented to write uh, a book length project. It's not like that's something that just sort of happens by accident on a whim. Oh really? <laughs> I mean, did you? Is that how you did it? I mean, like, are you um, the exception to the rule? What happened? Uh, well, I I've been uh, I wrote the book in the summer of 2011, the first draft of it, and I had been writing short stories and just sort of like playing around with writing um and feeling like, yeah, this is pretty good. I I like this. I like doing this. This is something I would want to do. And then I was just like, oh fuck. Uh almost 25 i'm so old oh, i have to write a novel before i'm 25 you know so now that i'm 29 i'm like oh my god that's so young um uh, and so i was like i have to fucking do this and um i just sat down and did it how did you do it did you have a schedule or did you just do it like whenever you had a free pocket of time or like was there any kind of uh, regimen well i i quit my job um, yeah, I that, working, that always helps. Yeah, I, I was just like, I can find a job. I've never really had a problem finding a job. So I was like, I just need to take a couple months and be unemployed. Um, yeah, I just did it. And um, it wasn't like a, a regiment thing. Like I was forcing myself to get up every morning, but I found the the project compelling enough that it was a pleasure to wake up and work on it. Okay. So did you have an, you had an idea of what the project was before you quit your job? Like you had been doing some thought work on it. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd started working on it a little bit while I was still doing my job. And then I did that whole thing where you're like, you know, I'll come in and train my replacement over the next few weeks. And then you, so you have like a very, very part-time job for two weeks and then you have no job. And then 
a couple of weeks later, you have to get another job. And, this, <laughs> and, and the book is like uh, it, it's uh, about a character who like loathes a coworker. So I'm taking it that yeah. you, this was rooted in some personal experience because like we've all had that experience of working with somebody that. Uh, like whose personal like peccadillos or whatever just drive us crazy and disgust us. And um, you get to know people when you're in an office environment with them every day. You know, you get to see them up close and personal. Yes. And an office is a place where you're kind of kind of like high school where you're thrown in with people you wouldn't necessarily choose to be around. Um, and so I don't know my the people I'm around who I choose to be around all the time are pretty similar to me so it's just uh, you're you go into an office and you're like oh right not everybody's like me right are you typing that, uh no I'm not okay. uh so so like this this coworker who who was this coworker describe this personality oh uh i don't know uh it's an amalgamation of multiple people. That's a safe. Mul- that's a safe answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it has to be one person. You hated one person, but you're scared that he or she is going to listen. No, 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 not at all, not at all, not at all. You're not worried about them picking up this book because, I mean, like, when a, when an ex coworker publishes a novel, people at the old place of work might catch wind. It could happen, and then that person could be like, "Holy shit, this is me." I don't think that that is going to happen, but I feel. Like, if it did, it would be strange. <laughs> but I, I'm, I, I don't know. I feel like the book is much more revealing of uh, of the character who's more in the position I was at the time than it is of, of anybody else. Okay, I feel so like I put me... myself more on display than I try to uh, say, like, and... Everybody else in my life is a shitty asshole, you know. Well, no, right, but that's I like, do a little bit of that too. I, of course, of course, but like that's like that's uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, like when you're doing kind of a cutting comedic portrayal, I think that self-deprecation is often advisable because it it doesn't work really unless you're cutting on yourself too. Otherwise, you just seem mean. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you have to sort of if you're going to go out and take a, like a, a critical scalpel. Um, you know, to other people, you sort of have to do it to yourself. That feels noble to me and like appropriate and, and what usually happens. Am I wrong? No, not at all. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I've tried to write things. I, I don't know if you try to write yourself as, um, as a sort of wise person in the book, um, your, your book or your story is going to seem like really self-indulgent yeah well i've always had that problem with like especially like like young coming of age novels and bill dung's romans and like even like a book as uh, popular as catcher in the rye like it always sort of bothered me like how fucking wise holden caulfield was for his age like the kids oh. four, he's 14 he doesn't know anything he's like but if you read it it's like oh. what is that too much yes i don't know i think he's too smart for his age i think he should be uh i think he should be dumber <laughs> Well, I think he's 16 in the oh, book, isn't he? Um, and too smart. when I was 16 and first read that book, I remember distinctly feeling like, yeah, fuck, finally. Well, but it's aspirational. You're like, yeah, I'm that fucking one. Maybe that's the deal. You, you. Well, and that's the flaw, I think, of reading. I, 
I, I don't know. It's an interesting book because when you read it, when you are his age, you feel compelled to be like him right. because he's saying something kind about how you feel. And so you, you're like, yes, you're getting it all right. And then when you read it again, when you're a little bit older and have more perspective on the time, you're like, oh, no, this is really sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That's exactly been, that's been my experience. And also just sort of like, come on, dude. <laughs> But I don't think he's too smart. I mean, I, I, sure, like um, Salinger has a lot of uh, precocious teens. I mean, that's his whole thing right. uh, with the like race high and all the like family of uh, glass whiz family. kids, the glass family. Yeah. 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 I guess, I mean, it's a good business, you know, precocious teens. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So have you done any readings yet? Okay, yeah, I've done readings. Okay, let's say okay, and and just like just to like you're in Chicago. I'm assuming this is where you used to have this job that sort of inspired this book, correct? Yes. What happens if you're giving a reading, and like in the back of the room you see this like a former coworker of yours who inspired this like loathsome coworker in the book, and she's like holding a copy of your book and has tears in her eyes or tears in his eyes? <laughs> what would you do? Like if someone confronted you? Because like here's the thing: is that I feel like. Most often, even if the portrayal isn't necessarily flattering, people are flattered to be fictionalized, um, which is sort of weird, you know, but I guess there is a, a portrayal that could potentially be offensive. Like, have you even thought about what that might ha like what might happen if a person were to confront you and say, I can't believe you did this to me? I have found that people want, I found that there, there are, I've found that people don't notice. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I guess it's just so. I'm, I'm really not worried about um, old coworkers. I mean, or I guess I should be worried about um, old bosses. You know, reading this book and being like, oh, I always knew that she was a shitty employee. <laughs> but then it's just there sort goes, of like yeah. there goes that reference. Yeah. Okay. So y you knew whatever, but it's fiction, right? You know, like everything is super heightened and it's in, it's set in an office and I've worked in an office and, you know, it's medical, it's a medical office. There are medical secretaries. I feel like the, you know, it's just, there's a type uh, of person who wants to work in, uh, in medicine because it's glamorous but they but they uh, so they have like a little i don't know it's it's hard to say because i don't feel very critical of the the title character jillian who is the co-worker uh that we are referencing right um, i i don't feel like the book is mean to her even though it is I, it, it's, <laughs> um, it's, it's she's a human being she's a type of human being and she it's a character and you built her yeah um i feel very very i think i don't know i i don't have any ins actual insight onto any real coworkers. i have insight into this imaginary coworker that i created but i feel that the that if jillian were a real person um and she read the book um, that she would be deeply, uh, I like to think that she would be deeply moved. <laughs> no, I don't doubt it. I'm telling you, people love to think of themselves as being characters in books, like even if they're you know flawed, which all human beings are. I think most of us are willing to accept that if we're going to be like, you know, quote unquote, immortalized on the page. Um, 
So, okay. So you worked in a medical office. Was that part of your mm-hmm. uh, research for this? Like, was a gastroenterologist? Mm-hmm. You did. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. okay. So that's a one for one. Like, what was the, what prompted that? Why did you do that? Are you into medicine? No, I'm not into medicine. Um, I, I just got the job very, very randomly. Like what, <laughs> what kind of, what kind of work were you doing? Um, I was, I was, oh God, I'm like, I'm quoting, uh, I'm, uh, this is directly, uh, out of the book, um, which is maybe too revealing of how similar I am to the main character. Um, but I, I was telling my primary doctor that, you know, I was really stressed out and I was feeling depressed and, you know, shit wasn't really going well for me. And I just felt awful. And he was like, well, do you need a job? Do you need a job? Because the doctor down the hall is hiring and you could work for him. Um, and so I was like, oh yeah, okay, cool. Um, so I was prescribed a job by my doctor. <laughs> Did it help? Um, Yeah. Yeah, you got some structure. You're doing stuff. You're making a living. Financial yeah. stress is lifted a little bit. Yeah. All right. It was helpful. And I so mean, you're... the job the job was, um, you know, scanning scanning printouts of images from colonoscopies into a large database. <laughs> so you know, there was a little bit of, I don't know, it felt harmonious to how I was feeling about work in general. Like right. this, it just felt like a symbol for what i feel work is which is just like sorting through shit well it's like you know we all want jobs that mean something to us we want to do meaningful work and it's really hard to get that job and and moreover to get paid decently like to do it uh so much of work it seems like is like very little meaning to the people who do it you know i guess maybe you have to find the meaning do you understand what i'm getting at like when you're working (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, but like writing a novel feels like meaningful work, making like making art and, you know, expressing your point of view and hopefully connecting with a few readers uh, slash millions of readers, you know, in in like a perfect world. That would be a much more meaningful way of making a living. Yeah. um, Sure. Yeah, of course. So how do you I mean, but like, do you think, (laughs) okay, but here's the thing, because I wrestle with this myself. Like, do you think that uh, people like you and I, who want this meaningful work and also want to make a living. Is that like a spoiled brat thing to want? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Cause like, or, or do, are there people out there who are like, you know what? I work in a fucking gastroenterologist's office and I find meaning in it. I have to work to find that meaning and make it mean something to me. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think that there are people who find meaning in work Sure. But, uh, I, I think that if you're working in an office, there's something meaningful in your life that you're trying to support by making the money doing the work. Right. I, I don't think that, I don't know. I've, I've never really met anyone who, who has liked stuffing envelopes or who has liked, um, doing phone sales or, you know, these are just the jobs that I've had, you know, it's like secretarial jobs. It was very, very 
tedious, meaningless jobs. And I I feel good when I do that. And then I get to come home and do something that gives my life meaning. You know, it just feels like home. It just feels like, you know, it just all feels like math class or just like the thing that you have to get through to get to the meaningful part of your life. Do you think, but do you think it feeds the meaningful part? I mean, because clearly you got your, your source material for your book from the meaningless part of your life. So the meaningless fed the meaningful and also... You know, once you quit this job and you had the two months to devote, it sounds like you got right to it and it was effortless to like do the work. Like you were happy to do the work. But um, do you think that there's any danger that if you ever did get to focus on this full time that you would have too much time on your hands? And well, I just I don't even think there's any danger of me uh, getting paid to write <laughs> novels full time. So hey, you I never know. I, I don't. I feel like I just feel like worrying about you know how hard it would be if i were a career novelist it seems completely psychotic yeah to me if we're coming you know with my experience i just don't that seem i have a lot of other stuff i could worry about what do you but you also you screenwrite too and then what are you doing do you have a day job now are you are you touring the book or what um i'm i'm working as a temp right now okay so i am doing secretary shit Temp- on, on a temporary basis, you know, like a work a week, take a week off, um, right. work a month, take a month off. All right. And when then writing on the side? Uh, yeah. 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 What are you writing? Um, I don't really like to talk about what I'm writing while I'm writing it. Book, book or screenplay? Uh, I don't really like to talk about what I'm writing when I'm writing it. Superstition? <laughs> superstition? Um, no, I just, uh, I feel like... Uh, I don't know. I just thought it's, it's, it it's not, it's not, it's not uncommon. Yeah. It's not uncommon for writers to not want to talk about it in, in process. Yeah. It's just, it puts, it puts pressure on it, I guess, yeah. or something, or it's just not, it's still at the, it's what? still at the point where it's just for me. So I like it to be that way. I get you. Okay. I won't press anymore. You strike me. You strike me. Okay, this is weird because I've never met you in person, but you strike me as a funny girl. Okay, cool. <laughs> were you growing up? Were you the funny? Were you like the wise cracking girl in high school? Did you hang out with funny people? You seem sort of second city to me in Chicago. Like, is that anything that you've ever been tempted? Um, no, definitely. I mean, I wanted to be um, a stand-up comedian when I was in second grade. See, um, but I was not. I, def- I definitely. It wasn't like. And then there's wisecracking Hallie or or anything. Um, all my friends were really smart and funny, and we like to joke around. Um, so, what were you had friends in high school? Were you popular? Yeah. Were you like a part of like a, a like peripheral set of like cool, funny nerds, or like what was your situation socially? Um, I had a stint with the cool kids early on, um, and then I ended up hanging out with the people who worked on the <clears throat> like on the school paper and stuff. Right. Um and uh I I took art classes but I didn't really hang out with the art kids cuz they were like a little too cool for me. Did you have boyfriends? Um, did I have multiple boyfriends? I don't know. Did you date in high school? I didn't. <laughs> um I had a boyfriend in you high did. school. All right. Good guy. <laughs> Yeah, he was super nice. Did your, yeah. pa- did your parents approve? 
Yeah, they liked them a lot. Okay. And then like family-wise, uh, what do your folks do? Like was it a good uh, childhood? Um, it was absolutely horrible. Was I'm it? just kidding. Oh. No, no. Um, I, I, I have um, cool parents. Um, they were big readers. Um, they, they liked hanging what, out with me. What do they do? What does your, uh, what does your um, dad do? My dad, uh, they're both retired now. My dad was a museum curator and my mom was a law professor. Oh, wow. Okay. So brainy people. Yeah. All right. And then siblings? None. None. So only child. Yes. And they were your parents supportive of your artistic pursuits? Yes. Okay, so you don't have to work against that. Like, there's no like, hey, we want you to be an uh, an attorney. No, 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 no. My mom actually told me many times. You know, she she says, don't do that. Don't don't be a lawyer. Or uh, they say lawyers are miserable. Like a lot of lawyers, like they're they're miserable. Which um, I just maybe I just want to believe that (laughs) makes me makes me feel better about podcasting out of my garage. They. They all seem really happy on TV. <laughs> well-dressed, well-groomed. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so good grades in high school? You were a brain? Oh, no. No, I had really bad grades in high school. Um, what can I – I'm just curious. Uh, what? What? Why are you interested in my high school GPA? Um, I'm interested in how, like how, who people were when they were younger and how it like, you know, how they became writers and what their lives were like. I always ask people of this. I think so. Like, I think someone, someone's academic performance and how serious they were as a student can sometimes be instructive and like illuminating when it comes to the kind of writing that they do or how they became an artist or how they see themselves. I mean, you know, okay. Yeah. If you, if okay. You, if you don't want to say, you don't have to no, say. No, 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 no. I'll say, I was just curious because yeah. I've, I've been asked this before. So I was just curious. No, I was a very bad high school student. Um, I, uh, do you know why? Uh, cause I thought that all the classes were bullshit. Um, uh, but then, you know, I just, I didn't want to do it. I, I was understimulated, but then, you know, I would get upset and then, just so I would be like, I can do it. I can do the homework. And then I would do it for like a week and then I would get bored and sidetracked. And so what are you talking so about? I, Did you almost fail out or was it just like you got like a 2.5? <laughs> um, I think I, if you took by, I did really well senior year. Um, and if you took that paired and kind of combined it with freshman through junior year, I was like, you know, about to crack uh, 2.9 <laughs> or something. Yeah, that's, that's enough to get you into college. Yeah, well, I went to art school. So. Okay, so uh, where'd you go to art school? I went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Okay, so from, from Lansing to Chicago, mm-hmm. to the big city, great city. Mm-hmm. You must have been like wide-eyed and, and having fun. Um, I, yeah, I wasn't wide eyed. I don't think it's, it's, at least, I don't know, uh, back in, way back in 2004, it wasn't very cool to be wide eyed. So, well, you know what I mean though, you're coming, (laughs) coming out of a smaller town and suddenly you have like the city at your fingertips or whatever. Like that's fun. Yeah. Well, it's fun. It would have been fun in a small town too, though. You know, it's just fun to, uh, to be on your own and to get to choose what you do and 
get to sort of be in charge, but not have any responsibilities really. Right. So what kind of art, like were you, what was your concentration? Um, I wanted to do printmaking. Um, and I liked drawing. Um, did you do the cover for your book? No, I didn't do the cover for my book, but, um, my friend Jenna Caravello did it. Um, she went to SAIC too, and we met through friends and I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of her work. She's a really talented animator and illustrator and she's just the best. Okay, cool. So you have a visual art, uh, artistic capability in addition to verbal. Uh, I would say I have an interest in, in visual art more than I have a capability in it. <laughs> well, see, but that's interesting to me because that sort of happened to me, I guess, to a degree where, you know, we, we start out knowing we're like some kind of artist and we go to school and we're like studying to be one kind of artist and then like realize our truer path or the one that's a better fit for us like along the way. Like, do you feel like that's what happened to you? Um, Yeah. Yeah, I do. So like when you were going to art school to pursue like printmaking or whatever, like did you uh, also nurse literary ambitions or was that something that was like not even on your mind? It wasn't really on my mind until um, until sort of on a whim I took a creative writing class. And then I just noticed that I the class made me really nervous. Um, and I was like really, really worried about doing a good job uh, and felt very competitive and f- felt very much like I have to, I have to do the best in the class, which, you know, in, the, in a figure drawing class or a printmaking class or, a, you know, fiber arts class, I was like, I don't fucking care. Oh, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> um, it's like selective competitiveness. Yeah. So it, it felt good. I felt more focused on, on my homework. <laughs> Uh, and you were really like clocking yourself against your classmates, like I got to be better than so and so. Yeah, I think that that anybody who says that they're not is either not paying attention, very very advanced, or lying. I think, but I look back on my own workshop experience, like I just didn't want to embarrass myself. Like I just didn't that, want everyone to be like, uh, like because that that happened to me in my very first workshop submission, where the thing that I submitted was shitty and. I was like, I can't go through that again. Like, I was very humiliated by the response. You know what I'm saying? Where, like, people were like, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, but uh, doesn't that, I mean, but that that's competitiveness, right? You're like, yeah. I don't, yeah. it's like either, like, desire for some sort of abstract and pointless power or, like, desire to not be hurt and humiliated. Those are the two things that, that fuel but not like to beat, not to like beat the person across from me. It was just like I just want to get through this without like people. I, I want people to understand what I said. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. That's uh, that's how it is. I wasn't like picking. I I really liked all of my uh, classmates and all the writing classes, and uh, I liked their work. And I, it was a good. It was a positive experience. I would yeah. say. Well, it's interesting. You know, when it comes to competition and having like a competitive spirit and a competitive will. Like, you know, maybe it's a, it's a good thing. You know, I feel like maybe I need more of it. Um, like I, some people are really wired that way. Like they want to fucking win and like they will stop <laughs> at nothing. And, uh, yeah, I'm the kind of person I, where it's like, okay, you can win. Like I kind of have too much of that maybe. No, I think that's good. That's better. Um, I don't think feeling competitive is ever helpful. Yeah. 
Well, I don't know. I don't want to say anything absolute. Well, but yeah, it's also, but, but no, but then it's also, and like this can sometimes sort of sound like false modesty, but it's like, you know, I'm not competitive. I'm just competitive with myself. And I think being competitive with yourself and trying to do your very best is healthy. Like you want to give your best effort. Like you don't want to waste everybody's time with some like half-assed thing that you wrote the night before, you know, because that happens a lot in workshop where people haven't even like revised their own stuff. And it's like, that's shitty, I think, to do to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like maybe those are two different things, what? though. Man. Like being the being competitive with yourself thing is a different idea than the making sure you put effort into your writing workshop piece thing. Because I don't know if you should ever be competitive with yourself. I mean, that feels <laughs> like a weird idea to me. Or just um, wanting to give your best effort and like having, because it's like it gets very difficult sometimes to. Uh, it's or I should say it can be very easy to trick yourself into thinking you're, you've done everything you could and you tried your hardest. Like you can even say those things both like silently to yourself and verbally to other people, and you can be lying, you know. And so it's like trying to get an accurate sense of that. I think was always like my measuring stick. Like, did I try my very best that I spend as much good time as I could and put all that I could into making it as good as I could like that sort of mindset. Does that make sense? It, uh, yeah, it does make sense, but I also <laughs> just, <laughs> but, I, but I just feel like I, I guess, um, my experience with it when it's working is like, not it there's no feeling of trying or competition or or any of that you're just in it right um and which is, which is maybe why you don't like to talk about works in progress because somehow that could like poison the freedom yeah yeah it's just yeah okay i won't make you talk anymore. yeah no 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 i'm not i i don't mean that to sound uh i'm thinking and yeah. just saying yeah 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 while i'm thinking um <clears throat> So can I ask you a question? Oh, please. Uh, art school, um, you know, for college. Like, did you did you go wild? It doesn't sound like your parents sounded like they were pretty cool. Like, you didn't have a ton of like, you know, super hyper restrictive parents. Like, did you go wild in college, or you know, have any like periods of your life where you were really out of control? Um, that feels like a really personal question, but um, I, you know, I had friends and I, I drank, you know, I never like stood on the bridge over the Chicago river, like <laughs> do me to jump, man, I'll fucking do it or anything. But you know, like yeah. I, I, I think I had a very normal amount of, you know, very normal. getting my yayas out. Okay. Do you ever do stand up? No, never have been on stage. Well, I've done readings, but no open mic. No, 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 no. Have you? No, I can't. I mean, I, you know, I've contemplated it, but I've, that's as far as it's ever gotten for me. Like I like the, like I revere comedians probably more than I revere any other artists, including writers. Um, just like what they're able to do, you know, and like with the effect, like I think making people laugh is, uh, as noble as it gets in this world and, you know, with all that, uh, it entails, but, um, you know, I just haven't gotten, I haven't gotten around to it. This is as close as I come. I'm comfortable sitting in front of a microphone, like in my garage, <laughs> uh, like isolated, you know, and like kind of doing it that way. Like I think radio and podcasting is, is a better fit for me, but 
um, I have all the respect in the world for people who get up there in front of people and can and can do that magic trick. Yeah. So, but that's not on your list. Like, is that something you could foresee yourself give you know trying, or are you going to stick to literature? Uh, no, I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to be a stand-up comedian. Oh, I feel like you might have potential. You have like a certain delivery and manner that seems uh, compatible. I'm just throwing that out there. Oh, well, I will take note of it. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep it in mind. Okay, so let's talk about the shift. You said you did this uh, creative writing class. Did you have a good instructor, or was it just like the? Was it just the 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 class itself and the work that it required? Like suddenly you're you're trying to write stories and you're sharing them with people. Um, was that it, or did you have any mentors along the way who like really sort of encouraged you or were instructive just as an example of how to how to do it? Um, I had a lot of really good writing teachers. Um, uh, Elizabeth Crane was my first, uh, sure. writing teacher. And I've, I've she's talked, to, I've an, talked to her on this show. She's an amazing writer and she is just so funny and so nice and, uh, really encouraging. And just, I don't know, there's something about like, uh, liking her and thinking that that she was smart and that her opinion mattered to me mixed with thinking that my classmates were smart and that their opinion mattered to me mixed with like, and then everybody has to read my story and that's kind of scary. It was like, it was, uh, encouraging and, uh, frightening right. uh, at the same time, I guess. How good were you? Like how quickly were you good? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, no, but I'm, uh, just, I'm saying sometimes people come out of the gates and they actually are like a pr pretty competent, you know, and sometimes people start out and they're they're absolutely fucking awful, and then they get publishable. But you know, through hard work, like how much innate natural talent do you have? <laughs> I'm not a very hard worker, so I don't know if that answers your question. Do you like how? Kind of, what, let me ask you this: What kind of reader are you, honestly? Like, are you somebody who reads like a book a day? Are you somebody? No, no. I it it fluctuates. Um, I I'm anywhere between two books a week to a book a month, depending on my, uh, my stress level yeah. <laughs> and, uh, my, my free time. Right. Okay. I feel like reading is like the dirty secret of most writers as they get uh, older. It's harder and harder to, to read a lot unless you really have either discipline or some combination of discipline and free time. Um, I feel like most writers these days are watching a fuck lot of Netflix and it's a dirty secret. <laughs> Yeah, I no, I I think I think so too. I I watch movies um and I watch TV occasionally, but I'm not a big like TV watcher. Okay, but you do screenwriting. But, you know, uh, you yeah. have some aspirations there. Um I collaborate with uh Jersey Rose, who's a really cool Chicago filmmaker. Um How did and we that wrote um, we met in school, and um, I was a huge fan of his stuff, and we're we're very close. Uh, and so I was like, I want to write a screenplay with you, and he was like, All right, and so we did it. Um, and what do you think? I mean, because I've I've done both myself. Like, you learn a lot about plotting and like story structure when you write screenplays um, that you don't necessarily always get with a novel. Like a novel is a little bit more unwieldy; you have a little bit more room to roam. But with the screenplay, you're sort of confined and you have to know your shit going in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because um, screenwriting is just the blueprint for a movie. Um, and 
and you know you, your actors might not remember the lines or they might it might change on set or you might need to rewrite something or you're just you're just getting it it's you, the language is all about the dialogue only it's not about like building the mood um the mood is built through the filmmaking not necessarily through the writing yeah but like the thing that but it is the story architecture like the architecture has to be sound for the movie to be good like i believe the screenplay matters a lot i think like it's like it's just the beginning like you say it's just the blueprint but like if that design isn't strong if the architecture uh isn't sound you know it's going to be wobbly just to like yeah. beat this metaphor to death. <laughs> um, so, but I mean, I think, I guess what I'm getting at is that it's a useful exercise, even if you don't have like cinematic uh, aspirations in a really like concrete way to just try it. Because I find myself learning a lot about how to plot a story that like I might not have otherwise learned. Like, do you feel like it's been instructive in that way for you when you go back to your books? Um. Um, yes, I do. I, I think that, yeah, in, in some ways, in some ways, yes. Um, but also just with writing, um, with writing, uh, fiction, I don't know. I've only ever finished one book, so I, I don't have like this great, like, uh, history of, you know my experience that i can share right. with everyone um you're but 20, you're 29 years old yeah that's like real i mean that's young anyway but that's really young for a writer i feel like of books I, it may be um it, yeah um but it's uh, the writing of the novel is feels very intuitive i feel like you kind of you have like a vague kind of murky place that you want to get to that you might take a couple notes on, but the, I don't know. I just find personally when I refer to the notes too much, then I, it sort of becomes like a paint by numbers thing. Right. Um, where it's just sort of like, I said that I would write this scene because it seemed good last week, but since I didn't write it last week, um, it no longer seems good. Yeah. Um, it, it just, it kind of grows on its own. It, so well, it, it, it is quite different. I feel. Yeah. Well, For me. Like, yeah. But if I that's the thing, like if you're too, reliant on the outline or if you spend too much time trying to sort of game it out ahead of time then when you get into the actual work itself what you're saying is that like it prevents you from being in it in the way that you described earlier where the work is at its best when you're just really in it like it's some some sort of like i mean i, I hate when artists talk like this because it sounds pretentious but for lack of a better way of putting it it's like you're in some sort of like trance like you're in the story and you're blocking like the world sort of falls away and you're very present with your work well it's um the it's a similar when it's going well it's a very similar experience to reading right imaginative immersion yeah we're just paying attention we are not thinking about well i don't know i'm just paying attention when it's going well and the characters are talking to you yeah i guess yeah 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 that sounds very mystical or something but uh (laughs) Uh, so how does it begin for you? Like with Jillian, um, like, do you start with a title? Do you start with a first sentence? Do you start with a character? Is it some sort of amalgam? Like what, do you have a way? Uh, with Jillian, I just started it, you know, I'd, I'd done a couple of, uh, you know, I read a lot of, uh, short stories that I don't show to anybody. Um, but I, you know, I'd written a couple of things based on this office and, dynamic and then i started 
writing another one and then just kept going with it. And, you know, so I just start with the first sentence, I guess. So, so much of it is editing, right? Okay. So that's an interesting, but that's an interesting thing that you just said, where you say you write these short stories that you don't show to anybody, but that seems sort of like dry runs for the novel. I mean, are you, is it like kind of doing research or doing like, you know, I mean, it seems like they feed the, the beast. (laughs) They might, they they might feed the beast. Um, yeah, but I, I would never use the word research because the word research feels too much like the word work, and I'm very <laughs> anti-work. It's an experiment. How's that? Is that a little bit more? Yeah. yeah. You're, testing. yeah. You're testing shit. You're giving... Or I'm just doing. Yeah. That's all. There I'm just go. doing. So I'm what... not... Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, I'm not... I, I, I'm not a very, like... I'm not a plan person because no. plans usually fail. I feel. So where, where are you spiritually? Are you like into Zen or like what's, what's going on? With <laughs> you there? Um, I'm an atheist completely. Yes. No, there's nothing. This is an accident of the cosmos. I am not in any way spiritual. At I'm all. an atheist. No, not at all. Okay. Was that how you were raised or is that something you came to as an adult? Um, I would say that, my parents are atheists as well. Um, I was confused that we didn't go to church when I was in fourth or fifth grade. And so I made my parents take me to church. Um, and we went to a Unitarian church for maybe a month, but it felt like 15 <laughs> fucking years. Um, and then I just stopped and that was kind of it. That's it. Yeah, see, my daughter, I have a four-year-old. She's, like, asking us now at this age. She's like, what is God? Like, she, because, like, we don't take her to church or we don't do any of that. And then somebody will say it, like, one of her friends or something. And she's like, what's God? That's tough as a parent. I'm like, like, all we say, I think my wife and I have agreed, we just say, like, God is everything. Like, but, you know, what do we, <laughs> what do you tell a kid? Oh. There's no such thing as God. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, that's probably what you should tell them. Uh, the truth. But I mean, I think that, yeah, but I might be a little bit different. Like, I don't necessarily, I don't think there's some paternalistic sky god or like, you know, entity that's orchestrating like a puppet master. But I do think there's like way more than meets the eye when it comes to like our reality and the cosmos and what's happening and that um, it's like God's either everything or nothing, you know? And so why not like be optimistic and be like, oh yeah, it's like just, there's some, there's some sort of magic juice in everything, some sort of crazy miracle. Like, is that... I'm not saying he's a man with a beard. <laughs> I don't know. I just want my I want my child to have hope. That's all. Or some sort of uh you know, I don't know. I don't want to I don't want to mislead her, but it's a tough question for a parent, or at least it is for me. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, as a parent, you just all you can do is what you think is the right thing to do. Thank you, Hallie. I appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have kids. You're not married or anything. No, no. No. Uh, and then like you and you don't plan. So you have no idea if you're going to like, is that anything that's not a part of your agenda to like engineer that sort of thing? If it happens, maybe to engineer a child. I no, don't... it's not part of my plan at the moment. My non plan either. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's just, if it happened, it could happen. It's not something you're close to. If, uh, um, I don't No, I don't foresee myself having children. I don't have like a, a, a desire to, you know, settle down and have a kid, uh, that's not really particularly interesting. It just, I don't think of it 
really. Do you, do you have, okay. You don't think of it at all, but like, do you ever think of it in like countenanced against like your desire to be an artist and to like do the work that, you know, like you might have to support yourself with a day job. And then of course you go and do the artwork that you love on nights and weekends or whatever. Like once you throw a child into that equation, it makes that more difficult. Is that part of the calculation? No, no. Okay. Just don't have the maternal urge. I don't even really see it that way. Um, I have a, I have a rabbit um, who is uh, 11 years old, and rabbits don't usually live that long. She's very healthy, and I have a very maternal urge for my rabbit. Right. Um, uh, but, yeah, I don't know. I don't – yeah. Okay. No, it's just interesting. Um, all right. So, like, in, in terms of, like, your future career – like I know you don't plan, but you're working on other. St- <laughs> you're working on other stuff. You do mm-hmm. have you do have some sort of competitive instinct, and you know sometimes people can play their cards close to the vest and whatnot. But like you do have an idea. Like I want to. Like what's your dream? Like do you want to? Do you hope? Like at least harbor some glimmer of hope that like I'm gonna be a. No- I'm gonna make my living as a novelist and a screenwriter. Like that's what I want to do, and that's my pie in the sky dream. And I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go for it. And if it doesn't happen, I'll still do it and I'll subsidize it with these day jobs. Oof. Um, I guess I just, yeah, shit. Um, I just really don't know. Uh, I don't really know how healthy that is. You know what I mean? Kind of. to do you, does this does that make sense I mean, to you? Like I just don't know. I, it's like I will. I'm going to keep writing. Um, that's that's not even that doesn't even fall under the plan category. That's just sort of like habit. Right. Like I like I'm going to continue doing that, and I would like it if people wanted to read what I wrote. Obviously, um, and uh, the more the merrier. Um, but as far as um, as far as putting some kind of, um, like pressure on it, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's really healthy. You don't like to set goals. Um, I like to set goals. Like I will clean the apartment today <laughs> or I will answer those emails today or, um, oh. I want to get through this much writing today or I want to call my mom today yeah. uh, but but goals where failure is sort of the the likelihood i i mean i'm not you know i'm not superhuman uh obviously everybody who writes something wants uh to to be recognized uh but i don't like i don't know i try not to set goals where failure is uh the most likely outcome that seems very ra- <laughs> that seems very rational you're not you're you're, you're, you're a rational person because like i'm more of an like i can be too idealistic and i can get all revved up about these like visions and like you know what i'm saying i can leap into things without having maybe properly thought through um the prospects like you seem to have done i i get revved up you do uh don't yeah i, I do um but i when somebody asks me like point blank, what's your dream? My answer is always going to be, I don't have one. Don't have one. <laughs> get, get through the day. Well, no, it's not that grim, uh, but <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, you're just trying to amuse yourself, I guess. 
right. while you're alive. And you said earlier, I mean, so you're an atheist, you're not a goal set, you're not a goal setter. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, you were at your doctor when you got this, you know, the job that inspired Jillian and you were working for this gastroenterologist, you got, you know, diagnosed and prescribed a job as you put it. Yeah. Um, and you said you were sort of like bummed out and like, you know, write the writing profession and writers temperamentally have a tendency to like be uh, depressive. Like, do you have any of that in a, like a, like a strong strain of that? Or is it just more of like, Oh yeah, I was just like in this like floundering period of my life and anyone would have been, you know, stressed and bummed out by it. Like, do you ever have to like fight back like the darkness? Like, do you have a tendency to go through <laughs> like seasonal affective disorder or any of that shit? Um, I would say that I, I have a tendency towards um, uh, towards negative thinking, um, but it, everything is cyclical. So wait, you like you like, but you're like you're rational enough to be like I'm thinking negatively right now. I'm in a dark place, but it's going to go away. No, I'm rational enough right now this afternoon to say that. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, I mean, you, you gotta, you know, once it ha- once you get depressed so many times, uh, you're sort of like, all right, yeah, that's gonna keep happening. So, so like, what it comes and goes. Like, can you time it? Like, is it every three weeks you hit like a funk? Like, is that <laughs> no. true? People people do have like neurochemistry like that, where like they have cyclical depressions, don't they? Yeah, I'm I'm sure I'm sure uh, I, I've read something like that on WebMD or, or something. Um, the, the wormhole of WebMD, like yeah. every time I get sucked into that, it's just like an hour of anxiety. <clears throat> yeah, well, just you know, there's this great app called Self Control um, uh, that I think everybody should know about, where you can um, you can set different websites that you don't want to visit, and then you set a timer. So, like, if you look at Facebook and Gmail too much, and you're trying to write, um, or if you're going through a hypochondriac phase, um, you can put WebMD or Gmail or whatever on this blacklist and set so, the timer. What's, what's on your blacklist? Let's, let's let's run through the websites. <laughs> um, it's mostly just um, Facebook and Gmail because I I'm just you know. What are you, if what, are somebody, you doing on, what are you doing on Gmail? You're just emailing friends, or are you g chatting? Um, emailing friends or just checking my email to see if any of my friends have responded to me. <laughs> right. right. Okay. It's distracting. I got gotcha. you. It's fun to talk to your friends. Yeah, of course. Of course. So, but it works like self-control. Like it shames you into getting back to work. Well, no, it doesn't shame. It doesn't shame you. It's just, you can't, you can't, it's not there anymore. It's a way to turn your laptop into um, a typewriter. Right. Oh, it t- like actually re- physically removes the web page. Like it takes. Yeah. It- you can't, if you go to Gmail, you can't, it says, I'm sorry, we can't open this. Oh. And you, if you restart your computer, or even if you try to uninstall it, you, you can't. There's no way to uninstall it. It's genius. Holy so, shit. yeah, if you were checking WebMD a lot, you could even set it for two weeks and say, no WebMD for me for two <laughs> weeks. I need to get into that. Like my, yeah, uh, you should. My wife is pregnant right now, and so like I'm, you start to track everything. Um, it gets a little bit tedious, you know, like what's, what's happening on this day? Like what are statistics? What's how, ha- you know, I get way deep into the, uh, yeah, but that's a kind of excitement though. It's things. Yeah. There's a, it's a long story, but it's also anxiety inducing, you know, there's like, they kind of go hand in hand. It's like anxiety and terror or like uh, happiness, and, <laughs> happiness and terror, like holding hands and skipping through a field together. If that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I think there's something uh, poetic about that. Um, okay, so no plans, no goals, <laughs> no God. <laughs> Uh-huh, no, yeah. Total internet, total and internet discipline via a, a third-party app enforcer. Yes. Uh, what do you do for fun? You go out to bars in Chicago in the winter with your friends. I love the bars in Chicago. Yeah, we've got some good bars. Um, have people over, go over to people's apartments. Um, winter is not. I mean, winter is cold here. This winter has been okay, um, but you just. Where you live just on hang out. North side, south side. Where, where do you live in the city? Um, I live in the Ukrainian village, which is sort of like West side. It's like Chicago and Ashland. I don't mm. know if that means anything to anyone. Uh, my sister, I mean, I mean, I don't know Chicago super well. My <clears throat> sister lives there. So I've been, you know, it's like, uh, it's always fun to visit. Yeah. You uh, just don't visit in the winter. Yeah. Cause it's gray. <laughs> it's, it's brutal right now, huh? Yeah. Oh my it's God. brutal. Uh, you have any travel plans? Do you, do you like to travel? Like you get out. I do. I like to travel. I like, I like fun and pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going on a tour with um, my friend Susan Lanier. Um, she's another writer on Curbside. She's got an awesome book of short stories, and we're going to go on a road trip um, out to the East Coast and do readings along the way. Um, so that's sort of a travel plan. Um, but no, not a lot of expendable income for some kind of extravagant travel. Right. Right. I hear you. I hear you. So how many cities are you doing on the tour? 11 or 10, 10 or 11. I can't remember. That's, that's a good amount. <laughs> I have it all written down somewhere. Oh, it's though. like two weeks on the road at least. Yeah. 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 Two okay. Uh, all right. So before I let you go, let's do something uh, I haven't done. I don't think I've done this before. Um, oh, yeah. Like looking back on your childhood, let's try to psychoanalyze you a little bit. <laughs> okay. Um, like f- formative experience. Was there like, what, if you could point to one thing that happened to you as a kid that was like super pivotal and maybe shaped your worldview and sensibility and maybe had something to do with you becoming an artist or like leaning in the direction of this kind of work of self-expression, what would it be? Um, I don't think it was one experience, um, but I would, uh, you know, my parents were, you know, they always read, they always encouraged me to read. We were always going to art museums and they were just very, very interested in teaching me about art and culture and um, that that taught me that that was important and possible and possible. Like there were people who, who made this stuff, which I think can sometimes be um, hard to understand for, you know, young people in particular, it kind of seems like it's, you know, there's some like wizard in a factory somewhere like at the North pole. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like it, tan- it tangibilizes yeah. it. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, like when you're standing in front of a Matisse painting, you don't think like, oh, I could do that. (laughs) Unless you are, you know, one of the Philistines who thinks that their nephew could have done it or something. You know, like there's, I want to say there's this factoid about Matisse that I read once where like he had like a really bad case of like asthma or like he got really ill. I forget exactly what the affliction was, but he got ill when he was like in his early 20s. And his mom, while he was like recuperating, got him a set of paints. And like at the time he was like in law school or some shit. And like that was how he started painting. Oh, that's really sweet. Yeah. But it's also it's also like faded and like, oh, my God, it was like something he did 
you know, maybe he was nursing the amb- like secretly nursing the uh, ambition to do it, and that just gave him the opportunity. But, um, you know, I guess, and then you, you know, you had maybe as a result of the, uh, you know, the father as a museum curator, that was part of what, like what fed your visual artistic impulse when you were going into college. Um. Yeah, and also it was just I don't know. This was the only class I ever got good grades in, so right. It just made sense, you know, path of least resistance. Well, but it makes it when people tell you you're good at something and you get some sort of like positive reinforcement. Like I don't care how like disaffected you are as a teenager. Like that shit registers. I, I mean, yeah. Like, like I dozens of writers on this show have pointed to exactly that sort of feedback as the reason they, you know, moved in the direction of being a writer. It's just some teacher saying like. Hey, this is good. You know, like all of us need someone to tell us that. You know, like, oh, this is good. I'm doing this right. Like, okay. Like, then I'll, I guess I'll try this, um, which can be uh, for some of us like a a very fateful decision <laughs> that leads to poverty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Encouragement is important. Yes, that's uh, that's for sure. All right. Well, do you feel like we covered anything? Uh, everything? Do you want to add anything to this conversation? Anything about the book or about yourself that you feel like people should know? Oh, um, I will leave all of that to you. <laughs> you will. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. We made it through the hour. Uh, I congratulate you on, uh, you know, your debut. I wish you well on this tour. And I also wish you well on whatever comes next. I don't want you to talk about it. I know it's top <laughs> secret. It doesn't exist. But in case it might someday, I wish you well on it. Thank you very much. All right, guys. There you go. That's Hallie Butler. Very enjoyable uh, young author. Her novel's called Jillian. It's available now from Curbside Splendor. Did I mention that it just dropped? Jillian. Oh, there goes a uh, helicopter. You hear that? Jillian is available from Curbside Splendor. Jillian is a novel. Hallie Butler is the author. You can find her on Twitter where her handle is at H-B-U-T-L-E-1. Like (laughs) H-Butler-1. It's like Butler without the R. It's complicated. Look her up. Check out curbsidesplendor.com. I think Hallie's on Facebook, too. Maybe Instagram. You can find her. You have Google. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for uh, the music that you're listening to right now. All the music. Go to killrockstars.com and learn about more music. Hey, you want some new uh, earbuds or headphones? You want to get 33% off? Go to tweakedaudio.com. Tweaked Audio makes earbuds and headphones, and you can get 33% off just by entering the offer code other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, tweakedaudio.com. Check that out. And while you're at it, go sign up for Other People Premium. That's a great way to uh, support this podcast. It's also a great way to get access to every episode. The way it works is you get 50 episodes for free. If you want to get like all 346, you want to get access to the whole thing, just sign up for Other People Premium. It's as cheap as 75 cents per month. That's it. Go to otherppl.com for more info. Or get the uh, Other People app, the free Other People app available for your Android or your iPhone. Get it onto your uh, on your device. Get that free app. Sign up for Premium right there within the app. It's very easy. Best way to listen. So, you know, it is it is funny that people always uh, compliment my dog. I'm glad they compliment Walter. I'm happy for Walter. He needs attention. He needs positive attention from human beings. I'm not jealous of my dog. I just think it's odd. Little little odd. Little funny. 
totally understandable. Probably normal. But I wonder, like, do people want to talk to me, but they're too shy, so they're, go they're going for the dog as, like, an icebreaker? They don't want to talk to me. They just like the dog. And this GE thing. Two weeks of work and a hundred and something thousand dollars. Could you imagine? That would have been legendary. Sorry I could not make that happen for you guys. I know you would have enjoyed watching those videos. Of me in like uh, some pleated khakis. Like a pastel button down. With the sleeves rolled up. Making finger steeples and talking to... Uh, a sweet-faced mother in Winnetka, Illinois. I don't know. I need this thing to blow up, man. I need to blow up. Don't we all just need to blow up? It's all about blowing up. You do 300, you know, at some point, something's going to tip, right? There's going to be something that happens. Please remember that William Faulkner's middle name was Cuthbert and that Sylvia Plath was born on Dylan Thomas's 18th birthday. That's it. I'm all out of things to say. Thanks again to Hallie Butler for taking the time to talk with me. Go get her book. Support a uh, debut novelist. Support an independent publisher. Curbside Splendor. Thanks to you guys for tuning in. You know I appreciate that. And thanks again for all the well wishes. Shit's going to work out, right? It's got to work out. Right? Something's going to happen, right? Things are going to change. I can feel it. Everything finds its way to work out. That's what they tell you. I got to make shit happen. I got to make shit happen. I got to make shit happen. I got to be productive. Got to. I just cut myself off there. <laughs> I've, I've said enough. It's over. It's over. Let's just let this one go.